So good morning. This is the uh, fifth in a series of talks on freedom. And the focus so far has been on finding freedom in awareness. And I talked earlier, this is, this is um, continuing that theme and, and continuing particularly the focus on finding freedom in inner awareness. And how many of you have not been to any of the previous four talks? Okay, so a few, or more than a few, about uh, a third maybe. So those talks are available on, at the website Dharma Seed. If you look under my name, uh, Donald Rothberg, and they may help fill out some of uh, what we've uh, been covering in these weeks. And I'll give a very brief review now, but I want to go to the main theme today, which is um, I would call accessing the extraordinary dimensions of mind, mind, heart, body. That is accessing the deeper dimensions of our being in a direct and immediate way. So I'll say more what I mean by that. Um, the theme of freedom is right at the heart of our meditation practice. It's really why we do this practice. We want to find a kind of inner freedom that lets us respond in as wise, open, as skillful a way as we can to whatever occurs. And in in many ways, freedom is the great story or the great theme of what it means to be a human being. Whether it's um, the inner freedom that's often focused on in spiritual traditions or the, the outer freedom, the more outer freedom that's focused on in the traditions of the American Revolution, the French Revolution, the great movements for social justice to end oppression. The theme of all of these efforts uh, is freedom. And I'm particularly interested in the long run, this is what I think I'll do when I come back to talk in September, is to ask what's the connection between these different dimensions of freedom? Between uh, what I've really identified as three core aspects of freedom. The first is that social freedom, freedom sometimes said to be the freedom from oppression or from bondage, the freedom of expression, of speech, of association, of religion, and so forth. Those are, in our society, some of those are often taken for granted. So there's a, kind of, there's a kind of dimension of social freedom. But the emphasis in the meditative traditions has been more on inner freedom. And uh, sometimes I think that the, um, the social freedoms, one way to understand them immediately in a simple way is to understand that the social freedoms can make the conditions for developing inner freedom um, more accessible, easier to find. The fact that we can come here 
and um, associate and meditate uh, makes possible certain kinds of exploration. You know, I traveled in the Soviet Union uh, before the end of the Soviet Union. I met people who had been put in jail for practicing yoga in the 1970s and 80s. And so, um, obviously, the social freedoms are very significant. But I'm not going to focus on those so much, but to say that the last uh, few times, I've been looking at two aspects of inner freedom. You know, and again, when I come back in, um, in September, I want to look at what's the connection between the inner freedoms and the more outer freedoms. I think that's a huge um, concern, really, for, for our times. And I talked about two types of inner freedom, you know, a little arbitrarily, but talking about um, the freedom, the, the inner freedom through in relationship to what we can call ordinary mind. And then I also talked about a kind of inner freedom through awareness of extraordinary mind. So it's really an inner freedom through developing awareness in terms of ordinary experience and then in, uh, awareness in terms of extraordinary mind. And so what's the distinction between those, those two? For uh, ordinary experience, that's particularly talking about just our everyday experience and the way that we cultivate in our meditation, I think, more freedom in that everyday experience. And I especially explicated that in terms of not being uh, dominated or ruled or knocked around by the ordinary workings of our own minds. You know, that can ha- uh, lead us into, let's say, reactive patterns. It could be the ones that are most obvious or the reactive patterns maybe where we judge ourselves after something hasn't gone wrong or we're in an inter- interpersonal conflict where we're continually repeating words that kind of uh, exacerbate or continue a conflict or could be all sorts of commentaries or the stories we tell ourselves that scare us ourselves about something happening and so forth. That, that through the mindfulness practice we and the loving-kindness practice we become able to be with our own uh, everyday minds, see more clearly the patterns and be less in bondage to our own conditioning, to our own minds. And it's something that really develops quite predictably as we practice. It's one of the great fruits of our practice that I imagine almost everyone who has practiced some has experienced uh, in, in different degrees. That the patterns that ruled you five or ten years ago may not be there in the same way. For how many people would you say you can clearly see something like that? Yeah. That's, that's why we do this. And so I'm calling that uh, inner freedom through awareness in terms of relationship to ordinary mind. There's also a kind of inner freedom that we develop by touching something that we could call extraordinary mind. And again, I'm using mind um, in the sense of something broad, not related to thinking, but really more akin to awareness and including emotions, the heart, and so forth, love, it could include that. So I'm not using mind, mind in, a, in a narrow sense. And there seems to be this larger awareness that we can tap into. That's really the theme 
of most spiritual traditions. The aim is to touch this, sometimes it's called a large awareness, could be called different things. In other traditions it might be called the knowledge of God, or it might be uh, called, if we're focusing on a mo- more, the, more the heart aspect, it could be called love, but that there's some quality of our being that we could touch in meditation, we also can touch in the movement of our everyday lives. And we talked about, and I gave readings, some readings about how people sometimes touch a way of being in which there's a sense of a much more profound love, a much more profound interconnection, a much more profound awareness that goes beyond many of the ordinary constructions of experience. And last time I particularly focused on on those ordinary constructions of experience, the way experience is usually constructed in the everyday world, which is that we typically have a structure of a self, a doer, that tries that relates to objects in the world, uses language and concepts, tries to manipulate the world more or less to get what we want, to avoid uh, pain and to gain what's pleasant. Very simple model, we use language, We use language to name objects. We name Bell, Table, Donald, um, Speaker, uh, Image, and so forth. And we use that to navigate around the world. But the suggestion was that extraordinary mind actually is connected with a deconstruction of those ordinary aspects of experience, of sense of self, sense of objects, sense of time, being caught in language, and so forth. And we looked at, again, uh, not just meditative experiences, but also the kind of experiences which occur, out, could occur outside of any spiritual tradition. You know, being in the natural world, being in the mountains, or being in places of great beauty, being at peace and feeling a profound sense of connection, which we saw probably when I asked how many have experienced something like that, the majority of people raised their hands. And we can look to those kind of experiences in a lot of different domains, in the domain of art, artistic experience, music, um, sports. I brought in quotations from the book called Playing in the Zone by a friend of mine named Andy Cooper, looking at the spiritual dimension of sports. Quite amazing. When athletes have these marathon runners get into profoundly altered states, often, um, due to the intense effort and concentration. You can see a lot of reports of that. Or I also brought in accounts of people in very deep, intimate moments with others, where the usual boundaries end, where there's not so much a sense of self, where things go beyond language. And so we, we access something like extraordinary mind when we go beyond those constructions. And it's also the theme very much of, um, of meditation. That we can see the meditation practice as in many ways permitting us to, in a safe way, in a very supported way, to cut through the um, sort of the blind belief that we have in the ordinary assumptions of experience. And I said before that the primary reason for this ordinary orientation, or one of the primary reasons, is simply pragmatic. 
we use language, we have a sense of self, of, um, uh, of objects and so forth, we have words for everything, especially to because it helps us to get around, to do things, to cook, to arrive at Spirit Rock, to know what your car is, to go back in your own vehicle, to, to um, um, make things work, you know? And it, so it clearly has important value. And I suggested that the problem of this ordinary way that we structure things is that we somehow think that it's ultimate. We're so used to it. We somehow think that it's really the way things are. And yet we can know from a lot of perspectives that it's not. This can be a little disorienting. If I sit here telling you, the ordinary way we've constructed experience for 20, 30, 50, 70 years, it's actually, we kind of bought into a somewhat of an illusory way of seeing things that overly buys into the ordinary assumptions. That can be, hmm. Hmm. I hope I drive at the right speed limit when I leave. You know, and so, uh, but that's really what meditative traditions do. There is basically, another way to say it in a maybe more gentle way is to say, that the depth of love and wisdom and of knowing who we are are accessed when we go beyond our usual constructions. So the usual constructions are valuable when we buy into them, as we all do to some extent. It blocks us from our depths. And so part of what we do in meditation is we do a kind of controlled deconstruction of ordinary experience. I don't know if you knew that's what you were coming for this Wednesday morning. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know if you want to sign up for that. Anyone who wants to leave at this point, free will is... Okay. Should, I maybe, should I leave? I don't know. That would, that would disrupt things. So... Um, so, but we can really understand, you know, for example, when we meditate, especially, it's most evident when we go on retreat, we actually minimize the pragmatic constraints on us. In other words, so we sit with our eyes closed, we are suspended from an action context. When we go on retreats, we minimize it even more. You know, we don't have contact with others, we're in silence, we have our physical needs met for us, uh, and so forth. And the, the reason we do that is to kind of take away the, the initial constraints to make it easier to go more inward and look and explore the conditioning that's there, to really notice, to really notice that conditioning. So we sit and we're asked to notice how your mind works. Notice, try to be in the present moment. Notice how your mind goes to the future and the past. Come into the present moment more. And probably how many of you would say that you really have shifted some, at least at times, your ordinary constructions of time, so you can be in the present moment much more? Probably common experience. So, or we might shift in a way so that we notice, and it's particularly evident with our sensations, so that we notice that we're more at the level of sensations, and I can be with the sensations in my knee, without continually thinking knee. And it's actually, I discover it's actually much more subtle. There's this much more subtle of 
flow of sensations around knee than when I'm simply feeling something and just being preoccupied with the concept of knee. And so that's a very common experience in meditation as well. We, we, we go more to the level of sensations. We can do that in an inner experience. We can do that looking at, at what we call trees. We can be with the sensations of the um, experience that we call that of a tree. And it's very interesting. I was just on uh, Monday at the uh, exhibition at the Museum of Modern Art here in San Francisco of the Steins Collect. Anyone go to that? I was there Monday. Monday. <laughs> <laughs> and they had many of the paintings of Picasso or Cezanne, Matisse, and so forth. If you read their writings of many of those painters, they were doing something very similar to what I just described. They were a lot, you know, a lot of the work of modern art, and one of the reasons it was often seen as so scandalous was that it wasn't giving conventional representations of reality, but it was rather trying to look at the very mechanisms of sensation and perception. So if you think of the blotches, those were scandalous for some people because that's not, that's not what we experience. But they were trying to go beneath that. So it's very similar to what we do in meditation. Quite interesting, isn't it? You know, that you can see these parallels with what's happening in the artistic world. Or I think probably if you look at every artistic form, you'd see something similar. People wanting to get to a deeper level, not work so much with, with conventions. So we do that with, um, with sensations. We can do that with objects. We can look at how the manifestations of self appear and really uh, notice when self gets really thick, as it does sometimes when, we, when, we're, when there's a moment of constriction or pain or reaction. We can notice the self appearing or when there's a lot of self-preoccupation or, or self-image. So we notice these kinds of experiences in meditation. We are invited to notice impermanence, to really focus on where the self is really thick. And all of that results in what we might call a kind of, what some friends of mine call, a thinning of the me. It gets thinner, maybe more permeable. The self gets more permeable, not so much, here am I. You know, the kind of solidity that we know when we're in a conflict, you know, where it's, I'm here, you're there, we are definitely in conflict. <laughs> right? Do you know that kind of solidity of self that appears? And we're, so meditation really can be understood as deconstructing. You know, and as that progresses, prog- uh, progresses, it starts to access what I'm calling extraordinary mind. So it's not so mysterious, really. Sometimes we, one of the things I love about the tr- these rich traditions of meditation it makes accessing what we call the sacred, even though it's profoundly mysterious, in some ways it's not as mysterious. It's about deconstructing ordinary assumptions and holding it with care and love and within a community as we do that, because it can be disorienting to do that, can be hard, can be, can be challenging. You know, I know that's been my experience in many, many ways. There's been periods where it's, where I was feeling, oh, things don't look like they used to. My gosh, where am I? You know, and having to work with that at times. So part of the development of freedom of awareness works with ordinary experience in this, what we call deconstructive way. It's a profound part of our experience, of our, of our practice. There also are ways 
of directly accessing this extraordinary awareness for, at least for brief moments, and to have a taste of that larger awareness. And in many traditions, what one, what one comes to do is to actually touch that extraordinary awareness, which is a kind of awareness beyond the constructions, touch it more and more and have it become more and more prominent in one's experience. And that um, eventually one releases the sense of the, the ultimacy of the ordinary constructions. But as I mentioned last time, it's not that we get rid of ordinary constructions, but we see them in a new way where we see them more as constructions and we use them in that way. The Buddha presumably had gone beyond these constructions, but he used normal language, talked about I and you and we, talked about objects, talked about trees, but presumably in a way that was somewhat different from the ordinary way. You know, it's, it's that, that um, line from the Zen tradition that I mentioned uh, last time, that famous passage where it says, this is from one of the great Zen masters, 30 years ago, before I had studied Zen, I saw mountains as mountains and rivers as rivers. And then later, when I had more intimate knowledge, I came to see mountains not as mountains and rivers not as rivers. This is more the deconstruction phase. But now that I've attained the substance, I again see mountains just as mountains and rivers just as rivers. So it's in a way we come back to ordinary experience, but in a different way. Maybe with a, without buying in in the same way. And maybe you know, with a sense of something larger that's there along with the knowledge of how the ordinary constructions occur. Maybe it's a little bit like we go to another country, we get a sense of the relativity of customs, and then we come back to our country and we kind of know, or maybe, maybe there can be culture shock or something, and we kind of, we're in, the, we're in that world and we know that some of what we're doing automatically is just the cultural habit. And we see that really clearly. It's not a huge deal. We can still do it. We can do the cultural habits, but we're seeing it in a little different way. It's something like that. So I want to talk about three ways of accessing this, um, this deeper awareness in an immediate way. What I talked about earlier was the gradual way which we do in our practice, that we gradually approach this extraordinary awareness by the simple repetition of our practice, by what I was calling the deconstructive process. But there are also ways to not wait so long, because it takes time. On the other hand, most, some of these practices, as they've been developed in traditions, usually presuppose and work best when people have done a lot of practice. So there are, for example, in the Tibetan tradition, there are ways presented of accessing this extraordinary awareness in traditions called Dzogchen or Mahamudra, which some of you know about. And those typically, in the past, 
one would have practiced full-time maybe for eight years before you even got to these practices. In the West, anyone can go to any retreat or workshop anytime and with no prerequisites. Anyway, for better or worse, that's the way it is. But um, so just to say that these kind of practices, which I'll introduce now, really work the best when we have developed quite a bit of mindfulness, concentration, grounding in ethics, membership in a community, probably being part of a wider network, having done a fair amount of whatever psychological work we need to do. So a lot of prerequisites, generally. You know, not, you know, uh, because otherwise it's just not going to take. The other stuff is really calling us to work on that. You know. So that being said, uh, you know, and, and this is said in all the traditions, for example, um, I think uh, there's this beautiful passage from the Buddha where he says that practice is, is somewhat like the, um, the way the ocean shelf slopes off the coast of India. I don't know if you've been there recently, but it's probably similar. I don't know how does the Pacific coast slope, like, but it kind of goes out for a while and then pretty quickly, then after a while it goes deep, right? Something like that. That's the metaphor. He says, just as the ocean has a gradual shelf, a gradual slope, a gradual inclination, with a sudden drop-off only after a long stretch, in the same way our practice is a gradual training a gradual performance, a gradual progression, with a penetration to this extraordinary awareness only after a long stretch. That's the usual sequence that he was giving. Okay, but nonetheless, we can get a taste of extraordinary awareness. I want to talk about that in three, there are three broad methods, which really go across traditions. There are three broad methods of touching that extraordinary awareness in some direct, immediate way, which can make a difference to us because it can have an impact and we can know for a moment there's something that is beyond the ordinary constructions. Even if we're generally caught in the ordinary constructions, these methods can work. So here, here they are. So fasten your seatbelts. Okay. Uh, okay. I want to talk about three methods. The first is deliberately dropping constructions. The second is exhausting the ordinary mind. And the third is touching pure awareness. So that's dropping constructions, exhausting ordinary mind, touching pure awareness. So an example of the first kind, uh, dropping or letting go of ordinary constructions. Now, in the moment after being startled, most likely, and it's hard, maybe I'll do it again and you can be semi-startled, but it's actually a technique used in a lot of traditions. It's that essentially the extraordinary awareness is always accessible, but it's that our ordinary constructions cover them over. And certain moments, and it could be uh, the moments we were talking about that are in many of our experiences in nature or in certain very important moments, those ordinary constructions drop away for various reasons. You know, maybe in nature, 
I'm just really, really relaxed. I'm at peace. I feel totally safe. I'm not trying to do anything and I let go, you know, and something opens up. There are other ways, uh, so, but the awareness is seen as being always accessible. You know, that kind of that big awareness. And it seemed to be a kind of awareness beyond ordinary constructions. One of the ways that we can access it is checking for moments, for little special moments like being startled. It's said that in the moment just right after the being startled, you're probably not going anywhere. There are not objects, there's not time, there's just a kind of awareness. The invitation also is to look maybe um, right at the moment that you're yawning. Sometimes in the yawn, this is talked about over thousands of years, the yawn can be spiritually deeply significant. So I'd like to ask everyone to yawn (laughs) and and tune into the moment right after the yawn. Can you tune into something that is just not in the ordinary flow of constructions? A little subtle, right? How many people thought you might have noticed something? Okay. So, again, I'm not urging that you do this all day long <laughs> as a practice, but, uh, but it's something to look at, that there are certain moments where that kind of awareness opens up. Some, some meditative traditions ask us to look at the gaps between thoughts and to tune into the gaps between thoughts that there's something there. Another way to work with it is, is what I reported last week that I was once giving instructions by teacher Christopher Titmus for about a 10-day retreat or 10 or 12-day retreat. He said, don't do anything. Don't meditate at all. Don't try to meditate at all. But be aware, kind of non-distracted. So he was asking me to deliberately drop my doing, drop the doer. And that was one way of getting, of kind of, that was probably more of a deconstruction process for me because I, what I was watching was I continually saw how I continually wanted to do. I continually wanted to meditate. But some practices would really invite us to drop the ordinary constructions either for a few moments, you know, like can you, just drop everything. Maybe some traditions actually invite us just to drop for 10 seconds. Can you just drop all the constructions of mind right now? Maybe after I clap, just see if you can drop everything for five seconds. Okay, so it's really, it's kind of a a letting go. How many people felt like something, at least for a moment, fell away, even if it's for one second? You know? So there are ways, and those, those the, really the aim there is just to touch something. It's to get a, a vision of something that can be helpful. Generally, we have to do all the other practices that help us to, to kind of access that, that awareness. But there are some other methods. I'll talk about uh, two other methods. And sometimes people in practice actually use actually ways to startle oneself, you know, and I, I've used this sometimes in practice. If my mind is caught in a lot of words and constructions, I might suddenly, especially if I'm sitting in my own room, I might just clap like that to kind of, okay, thoughts out, you know, something like that. 
And those techniques are used in different traditions. So that's the first approach. I could say a lot more about that, but the first is deliberately dropping constructions. And I, I guess maybe I should say, maybe deliberately is just part of it, but it's dropping constructions. And we can look for those moments where naturally constructions are dropped. You know, sometimes maybe when we're really uh, just tired. Sometimes there's a relaxation of mind. So the invitation is to tune into that, because if we can tune in more often, we, we notice something. And in my own practice, I often <coughs> work, have worked with that kind of dropping constructions. In my own practice, I often do a sequence <coughs> where I don't immediately go into that, but I work up into a sequence where first I stabilize the mind with my <coughs> breath, with attention, and once that's somewhat stable, then I move to choiceless awareness with my eyes closed, where I'm just letting the flow be there, much like we did in the experience with big mind. When that gets stable, and I'm really able just to follow phenomena continually, which for many of us can take quite a while. I mean, I did, I did a lot of years of practice of that. And then, then I open up the eyes and see if I can just be not having constructions with my eyes open, which is harder because the eyes typically objectify very quickly. And so that's a whole training in itself. And then I shift into then when the those first types of um, practice all involve the intention to know, to stay with what's ever happening. And then for this last phase, I drop even the intention to know. And I just fall back into a kind of an awareness. So I, that's a practice that I do, that's a sequence. Does that make some sense, at least conceptually? But, so that could be guidance for a whole practice sequence. That could be what one does over several years you know, if you really wanted to focus in that way, but it would lead in that direction. So the second kind of practice I will call uh, looking until exhausted. How did I call it earlier? Uh, Exhausting ordinary mind. So exhausting ordinary mind is a second way, and sometimes that also can be there when we're just noticing that quality of exhaustion because Sometimes exhaustion leads to relaxation and not doing. You know, and some interesting things happen. So study moments of exhaustion. They're very interesting. Um, <clears throat> so this again is done in many kinds of traditions in various ways. Um, one way is done in Zen is done through koans. You know that the koans are really uh, ways to exhaust the ordinary mind. You know, like, and I, I had a passage I thought I'd bring in from a very interesting book by Stephen Batchelor, who's going to be here in the fall, uh, The Faith to Doubt. And he has stories of his own practice with a Zen teacher. So listen to this, but more from the perspective of this being a training in exhausting ordinary mind, in part through the use of koans, which in Zen are questions that cannot possibly be answered logically, but which the mind tends to try to answer logically. Like, what is the sound of one hand clapping? We don't do these kind of practices here at Spirit Rock, but if you want to do them, they can be very instructive. I have you know, a number of friends who have used them. So this is the beginning of a retreat where people ask these kind of questions to exhaust the, log the ordinary mind. 
A succession of bells rang out, summoning the 40 or so monks who had, who had assembled at Songwasa. This is a monastery in Korea where Stephen Batchelor was a monk. To that season, to the lecture hall for the formal opening of a retreat. It was a three-month retreat, I believe. The teacher, Kusan Sunim, pounded his heavy wooden staff on the platform and asked, Is your original face brilliantly clear to you? Wow. No one said a word. <laughs> he insisted, If you have the Dharma eye, say something. Again, there was silence. He gave a loud shout, Huck! And said, When the eye on the boulder opens, then you will understand. He read a verse that he had composed. In the beginning, awakening shines perfectly. Now the circle of illumination is scattered with broken tiles, which people claim are precious gems. Flowers bob softly on the river as they float beneath the bridge. He turned to his audience with an impish smile and casually asked what kind of teaching these swallows could be giving. After another perplexed silence, he replied for us, Brr, shrunk, meow, meow. <laughs> That began the training. <laughs> you know, and later, um, Stephen said, apart from the brief daily cleaning, all that happens in the hall is that I am asked to ask with all my strength, what is it? Or what is this? Or simply what? Why is it? Or why is this? I am told that it is the questioning that matters, not the words. So that's one approach that is actually, you can see what that would do. You stay with that question, what is this? Or what is the sound of one hand clapping? Or what was your original face before you were born? They confound the logical mind. The logical mind nonetheless tries to give answers. In Zen practice, one would meet with the teacher, one would give one satisfact unsatisfactory answer after the other. One would say, you know, okay, so what is your original face before you were born? Okay, anyone come up with a quick conceptual answer to that? You know, what, huh? what comes to mind? Light. Huh? What? Light. Light. So, so what is your, the Zen teacher would say, what is your original face before you were born? And you would say, light. And he would say, get out of here. <laughs> right? Because he could tune in. He's saying, well, it's, it's kind of a, you know, metaphysically, it's not a bad answer, right? But it comes from a conceptual place, right? And that's what he's looking for. He's looking for, are you coming from ordinary concepts? And so he would throw you out. And he would, that would be your experience week after week. And at a certain point, fatigue sets in. <laughs> Right? And something opens up in the mind. Again, very similar to what happens in ordinary human relations at times. Sometimes when we're exhausted, when sometimes when two sides in a conflict get really exhausted, that's when peace opens up. It's quite interesting. Exhaustion has an underrated role in spiritual practice. You know, it actually is quite, in many ways, quite important because it's the exhaustion of our usual ways of doing things sometimes can open up something new and fresh. So that's what this kind of practice is. Another form of it could be radical questioning, really looking for the mind. Some of you may know Ramana Maharshi in the Hindu tradition has a method he calls self-inquiry, in which one continually looks for the deep self and doesn't find it. This is what Ramana Maharshi advised the aspiring seeker. 
This, he, he called this inquiry. Trace the ultimate cause of I or personality. From where does the I arise? Seek for it within. Where does the self come from? You know, he say, he's saying, look for the self. Where does it come from? What's the origin of it? Seek for it within. It then vanishes. This is the pursuit of wisdom. When the mind unceasingly investigates its own nature, this is a direct path. So there's a, there's a way that he is actually saying one has to look for the mind, look for the deep self. But, he, but what isn't there in the quotation is that one doesn't really find it. You keep looking. So this is another method. I'm not going to have us do this exactly. But just to give you a sense, one more quote. This is from the Tibetan tradition from one of the great yogis of the 19th century named Shabkar. This was, this was his instructions. He's asking us to examine the nature of the mind. Examine the source of your mind, this knower of happiness and sorrow. Where does it come from? Does it come from external phenomena like mountains, rocks, waters, and trees, or the wind in the sky? From something solid or from something immaterial? Where can you find its source? If you think it comes from the semen and blood of your father and mother, how did that happen? In other words, how did mind develop from that? When analyzing in this way and having found, he says, no source, next examine the upper and lower body, then the sense organs, heart, and so forth. At this very instant, where is the mind? <clears throat> if it's in the heart, is it in the top or the bottom of the heart? What kind of shape and color does it have? When you haven't found the dwelling place of mind, try finally to determine where the mind goes when it moves. Through which door of the sense organs does it leave? And then he goes on, when an emotion or thought arises, find the place where it arose. Investigate how the mind leaves at the time of death. Analyze this precisely. So you can see this as sort of a version of exhausting the ordinary mind. He's saying, look for the, he's saying, look for this deep awareness and where do you find it? So the third approach, I'm going to do a short experience with this. We can call, what did I call it? Touching, uh, what did I call it? Touching pure awareness. That this is a third kind of approach, which again is used in different ways. The exercise that we did at the end, the guided meditation, which I called a big mind meditation, is one way of doing that. Did you have a sense of touching into a kind of vast open awareness that was receptive to whatever was occurring? How many people felt that to some extent? Kind of a larger awareness. That, that's the intention of that kind of meditation. You can do that sometimes. I talked about doing that sometimes, just sitting next to a creek for hours and just being with the sensations. And sometimes you can open up where you're actually not even trying to be aware, but one's just aware, having the awareness be like a receptacle. And things come, you know, like there is the sound. Just be with your awareness, not trying to listen to the sound, but just with your awareness as a receptacle like space. So there are practices like that. Another practice is that of working with awareness of an object and then shifting 
to trying to be aware of awareness itself. So whereas maybe the first two approaches were more deconstructive or working to deconstruct, this is more positive. It's touching that kind of deep awareness itself. So we can do this briefly. Take an object, any object. It could be my pen or it could be your uh, shawl, your, your hand, and just give attention to the object right now. So now we have a knower and known. It could be your breath if you want to go inside. Just any object. Be aware of that object. Now we can notice that there's a knower and a known. Now see if you can kind of almost like reverse the focus and become aware of the awareness, knowing the object. The focus isn't on the object anymore. It's on the awareness of being aware of the object. Another way of saying it, it's kind of going to that large receptacle, much like when we were with sounds. Can you go to that large receptacle of awareness? And be aware of the awareness of awareness. what I'll do is I'll just finish my talk and then in a moment I'll just ask you what that experience was like and any questions arising. But maybe in summary, these, these three methods, I think for me when I was surveying different ways to directly access this extraordinary level of mind, these seem to be the three, a way of grouping what I know into three categories. This sense of um, dropping ordinary constructions, Uh, then exhausting ordinary mind, and thirdly, touching pure awareness. What the purpose of these is to get a taste, but then if one was sufficient, if one was ready to touch the, you know, to access that extraordinary mind more, one would work to have that be more and more present. You know, so if you can maybe work with the, excuse me, with that sense of a large receptacle of awareness, then in meditation, we would try to have, see if you can stay with that for five minutes or 10 minutes. See if that can get larger. The long-term aim is to have that become first somewhat stable for longer periods in meditation. And then we would gradually bring it out into ordinary experience. So there'd be not a gap between meditation and non-meditation. That's the long-term aim really, uh, you know, another way of saying it is that we would have the capacity, if we, again, we could translate that awareness, we could say that it's also a deep sense of love or of interconnection, because I was more approaching it through the awareness. We could also approach it through love or through a sense of interconnection. But we touch that more. We know that it's part of our nature, which is big. 
And even if it's just a glimpse, you know, even if we have a glimpse, I'm sure that many of us guide our lives by experiences that may have been quite brief, that tell us about certain possibilities. And then we try to, in our practice, let that get more and more prominent. It may be that developmentally we need to uh, primarily work on some of what I was calling the foundations for this kind of practice. That's certainly could be true of many or most of us, and that, that's, it's good to know where one's at. But I wanted to give a sense of the kind of the fullness of the map, because it can be inspiring. It also, there's, a, I think, a, can be a sequence of practice, which is somewhat seamless, which moves in this direction. And then, so we would let it get larger, stabilize it, have it be more and more present in meditative experience, and then gradually have that sense of a deeper love or a deeper wisdom or a deeper awareness come more out into daily life so that the, you know, that those boundaries aren't there. A lot more could be said about this. And um, it's, it's a way of, I think, for me, of demystifying some of what this practice aims at. So we don't think of nirvana. What is that? You know, but it's actually really points in a way that we can make sense of. We've had some experiences in other domains that can really be quite parallel. And there are actually practices which can move. And there, is, there is, can be a sequence of practice uh, that moves in this direction. So let's just sit for a moment and we can compare our experiences and, and talk together some. I'm interested some in what that last experiential exercise was like, that short exercise. What was it like to intend to be aware of awareness? How many, I mean, and then every possible experience is fine. I'm not presuming at all that that was easy or that you felt that. I think the first times that I did this, um, it was pretty obscure. (laughs) And, but I just wondered what any experiences were. Anyone want to report? Yeah, please. Uh, I had my cup, and I realized, you know, I observed, so I looked at it, and then I went into uh, the different things that really go into, I mean, the ability to hold it, the ability to understand language, Mm -hmm. understand symbols, Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that was about as far as I could go. Yeah, so that was more like more reflective, really, right, right, right which is valuable. Mm-hmm. And the exercise was actually inviting just to be tuned into the awareness mm-hmm. of awareness. So it's kind of like um, it can feel a little bit like I'm trying to get inside my skull almost, right? But it's that kind of tuning in that would be. Um, uh, if you want to try that again in that way. Um, and yeah, please. To me, it just felt, it, it, you know, with each level, it just keeps getting bigger yeah. and more spacious. Like at first, you're really focused on 
a yeah. small area. But then when you're saying, try to look at your consciousness of, of that, yeah. then it, it, it just expands so that it's not, it's, it's bigger. It's bigger. It's yeah. Like How many people had some sense of it being bigger? And that's interesting that the, what, the, what I'm calling extraordinary awareness is often talked about using metaphors of it being space-like. Yeah. It's being kind of like, like we experienced maybe in the guided meditation, like we might be just a space-like receptacle of experience. And then when you said yeah. to try to be aware of the consciousness of the consciousness, then that felt even bigger. Yeah. It just was some sense felt of... of more vastness. Somehow. Yeah, so, so there was some way of letting go of whatever made it more constrained yeah. that, that was accessible. Yeah, that's very interesting. Please. Well, I, I felt it was difficult. Yeah. I mean, I could feel the difficultness, yeah. which is something I don't usually think about or yeah. feel. And for me, it was like letting go of words. Yeah. I mean, that I just, I kept trying to let go of words yeah. and just kind of be in this space of, but it was hard. It yeah. Had a, that was what I was. It was hard. So it was hard, hard experience, and but but there was to do. harder to do. It was almost like you were letting go of con- concepts were arising. You were saying, okay, well, let go, just, let go, yeah, let go, words, let go, and words. I there were words were coming. How many had something like that experience? That that words were making it harder just to tune totally into the awareness. Okay. And that's, that's a great observation and exactly what should be happening sometimes. You know. <laughs> so, yeah, please. Um, my, my, my awareness of my awareness was that everything got very soft yeah. and very non-objective. Oh. I was looking at my hand and my little pinky ring and suddenly there, it was not uh, an object. You know, things just got really soft and much less focused on an object. Yeah, why, why don't we say our names from now on forever? Phyllis. Yeah. So Phyllis was, again, this would be a sign of um, letting go in some way of some of the constructions, that things get softer, um, less the mental faculty working, kind of t- softening into some larger awareness. So that's, that sounds like it's going in the, in the direction, you yeah. know. But it is difficult that it's... Um, uh, because that that open awareness is non-objectifying, like like Phyllis was saying, and it's hard to go there. Our minds are sort of conditioned, programmed, trained basis of our experience is mind and object. You know, always has an object. You know, in fact, uh, a lot of the um, European philosophers who studied uh, consciousness and the uh, 20th century, some of the great philosophers, they said that uh, consciousness by its nature has an object. Hmm. Which, um, which I think these traditions would, would question that, but, but they were saying that its very nature is the word sometimes used is it's, inten- it's intentional, it intends an object. If you look to some of the great European philosophers of the psychologists of the 19th and 20th century, that was, there was unanimity about that. Among for many, yeah. Please, um, Helena. Um, it's 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 a, it's a combination of everything that everyone has said before. But for me, it's also it's a let go of thinking. Yeah. Um, like totally, because it's 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 like a meditation. As soon yeah. as you go, oh, I'm not thinking. Then you go, yes, I am. Now I'm not. Now I'm thinking about not thinking. 
Uh, That's right. It's gone. And it's, for me, it, it's milliseconds like yeah. where, you, where you see it. It's a millisecond where you sort of feel the awareness yeah. and you're not thinking. And as soon as you go, oh, I'm not thinking, you are thinking. That's right. <laughs> that's, a, that's so much humor there. It's like my, my story uh, of the retreat where I was said uh, not to do anything. And then I said, you know, at one point, I'm really doing not doing really well. <laughs> you know, and then I had a 15-minute laugh. <laughs> You know, so, um, but that's, that's great. Yeah, really noticing the kind of the insistence of the ordinary mind. And this, this is a practice. Like if one was getting training in this, we just got a glimpse. I really, you know, but it's something I hope that maybe you, maybe if you found that useful to, to work with that from time to time. Um, in a tradition that, w- in traditions that would work with these kind of practices, one would, you know, especially if one had the foundational capacities that really let it be developed fully, if that those were in place, then would actually do these, could do these practices in a retreat uh, for the better part of a day, you know, and so they start, starts to open things up like any practice. This was a glimpse not to expect anything, but again, people here have been practicing many for a long time, so uh, capacities are there, so yeah, maybe a few more, then we'll, then we'll finish, please. Amara. Um, when I heard, when my mind heard, be aware of the awareness, I went instantly into, I don't know what that means, I don't know how to do it, what is that, doesn't make sense. Yeah. That was my habitual, like the yeah. mind wanted to figure it out. Yeah. But really quickly after that, I kind of just went, I kind of was able to let that go and just notice that the awareness was bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah. So That's it very was interesting. great to see, like, yeah. huh? And then, ah, there's something here that's yeah. happening. Yeah, this, how, many, how many can relate to that account? Something like what you experienced. Mm-hmm. That, that there was you know, the capacity for letting go of thinking. Mm-hmm. Not easy, right? Mm-hmm. We, that's what we train for. Yeah, so long training. Yeah, thank you. That's very, very interesting. And then you notice the tendency and then you could open up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's, that's, if we were doing this as a practice, we would repeat that over and over again. Mm-hmm. And in that process, something could click more. Yeah, please. When I tried to do it at first, I couldn't do it at all. I was focusing on the object and trying to back off. Yeah. But then I kind of gave up. Then I decided just to go to space yeah. sort of, uh, and go from the other direction. And then I, I don't know, you know what I'm talking about. Then I could do it. I couldn't do it that other way. That you could, that it was harder to start with an object and kind of then let go of the focus on the object and go to something larger. But if you start with something larger, that was more accessible. Right, then I could yeah. be aware of the awareness. Yeah. But, um, yeah. How many had experienced something like that? Okay, yeah. Maybe Scott? Please. Yeah, I, one thing that just comes to mind, I, don't, I wonder what you would think about this, is that in the scriptures, there's often, uh, you get the phraseology, uh, something being pleasant or neither, up, neither pleasant nor unpleasant. And that's almost a state where there's uh, no election of preference. It's a state of pure, it, it would seem to me in a, in a way, yeah. it's a state of pure awareness. Yeah, um, we have to be a little careful with that. The question is about the places in the classical teachings where it talks about what we would call Vedna or the what we sometimes translate as feeling tone, either being pleasant unpleasant or neither pleasant nor, neut- nor unpleasant. You know, that's actually 
more referring to the continuum. It's really referring to the continuum of going from agony to ecstasy. But where are you then? If you're, if, if you're, I mean, where, where is that place that's neither? Well, it's actually, it's not so much about uh, what one mind, one's mind is doing with it. It's really about more the content of experience, that, that particular teaching. But, I, you know, where, where you're going with this would be more if we were to look towards equanimity. Then, then, then that make, starts to make sense. But the particular teaching you're talking about, feeling tone, right. is more about received content. Like right now, there are all sorts of things which are kind of neutral to you. you. You know, they don't, you know, like, you know, maybe the temperature in the room, okay? It's in the neutral zone. It's not a big, basically, it's not a big deal. But it's, that doesn't really have anything to do. You're not even necessarily very aware of it. But when we, does that make some sense? Yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah, but then, but what you're getting at is more like, an, is there an attitude? Here we would talk more about equanimity, which is an attitude where uh, we can be with whatever the contents are of experience without needing to go here or go there. And that's, that's I think, what you're getting at with that. Thank you. Okay, anything else before we finish? So I hope this was helpful. I've never given a talk on this before. <laughs> Is it, do you like the territory? Yeah. It's kind of interesting. Kind of, how many, how many people felt it stretched your understanding of what practice is? That was part of my, my aim. It also, you know, opens up like, a, there, there is sort of like a map of practice. And I gave one of them, you know, that's my own personal practice that gives us almost like a step-by-step way to go from just being with the breath all the way to you know, the, this, these more extraordinary states and even to it being actually larger. It takes practice. This doesn't happen without a lot of attention and work. You know? So I'm not saying this is easy, but from a conceptual point of view, it's, it actually is a map that actually is not so hard to understand if we think Again, if we understand that sense, that um, the depths of wisdom and love can be understood in part as, the, uh, as going beyond the constraints of ordinary experience and sense of uh, love often being about going beyond the boundaries of you know, this very firm self to a, a sense of strong connection with another or with the whole world. And wisdom really being about seeing interconnection and, and seeing that. So if we understand that model, it can really point towards how our very everyday practice is going in that direction. And maybe this helps fill out some further steps that go beyond it. So thank you for your, your kind attention. Let's just sit for a moment to finish.